What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. I want to start work on a new piece. A piece about rebirths. The inevitable pull that they exert and our efforts to escape them. Blood-curdling horror. So, not a fan of modern dance, I take it, Josh? Oh, that's what that was about? Yes. I thought it was witches. Tilda Swinton there in a scene from Suspiria, a remake of the 70s cult film from Italian horror master Dario Argento. Suspiria is set at a famed German dance academy. That, spoiler, is a front for a coven of witches. It's directed by Call Me By Your Name's Luca Guadagnino. I prefer coven. This week on the show, a review of Suspiria and the film spotting top five uses of color in the movies. All that and more ahead on Film Spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting. We will be testing our powers of description this week, Josh. The Film Spotting Top 5, inspired by the original Suspiria, we'll find out if it really connects to this new one, directed by Luca Guadagnino at all. Uses of color in movies, a great suggestion by you. How many synonyms are there for red? Because there's a lot of red in my list. I didn't put much time into any of those alternatives. You're just going to hear... A lot of red. You didn't go to thesaurus.com no. and, and really give it a workout or metaphors sometimes are helpful there. Come on, Adam. You've got a little time till the top five. That's true. I'm excited to see what you came up with, Josh. And do you want to briefly set up what we mean when we say uses of color in movies? Well, first, I want to give credit where credit is due. It was an idea I stole from a listener oh, okay. on Facebook, actually. The best yeah. ideas come from there, always. Usually that is the case. Franco Esmail, when he heard Franco, that, San Francisco. Nice. When he heard that we were not doing our review of mid-90s and needed a top five tying into Suspiria, mm-hmm. threw that out there right away. Uses of color in movies. And I think you and I agreed pretty quickly on that we wanted this to be something that was employed throughout the film, not a single yes. splash of color. Maybe the example to give is Schindler's List, where it is that one use of the girl's dress. We wanted something that carried through the entire film. But first, before we get to those lists, how do you follow a critically acclaimed Oscar-winning coming-of-age drama? By directing a remake of a garish, gory 1977 Italian horror film, of course. When you dance the dance of another, you make yourself in the image of its creator. I feel like I'm not even here yet. The template's incredible. One, two, three. The way she transmits her work. You have to decide what is it you want to be for this company. There's more in that building than what you can see, Doctor. You are living with dangerous people. Why do we do this to ourselves, Adam? It's late, and that was a long movie. An after-screening review of Suspiria we got out of the film maybe 20 minutes ago, and my head is still spinning, as yours likely is. Probably not the best movie to choose for this review scenario. It's always difficult to come right out of the screening. Sometimes I prefer it, just throw those fresh thoughts out there, but I have maybe more questions uh, than I do thoughts at this point. That might work. We'll start there. I do think it's worth beginning by making a distinction between Dario Argento's Suspiria and this one from Luca 
Guadagnino because a lot is added. There's an extensive running time compared to the original and extra. It's basically too suspicious. Yeah, pretty much. It, it almost gets to that point. And the bones are the same. The story essentially is the same. We do have another American dancer who travels to a prestigious German dance academy, also named Susie Banyan, in this case, played by Dakota Johnson. She gets there and fairly early on um, realizes that, yes, Coven, Coven, whichever way you want to say it, this thing's run by witches. All right. Those are the same plot points that both films follow. Here's some of the stuff that is added in 2018 Suspiria. I won't give it all because there are some revelations we should probably leave unmentioned. It is set in Berlin in 1977. So one thing that is new is the hijacking of Lufthansa Flight 181 by members of the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine. Yes, I had to look all this up quickly. I was going to say, you've had enough time to, <laughs> to look that up because uh, it is referenced throughout this film that this crisis is undergoing while the events of the story proper are unfolding. Okay, so that's added. There is also a character, a Dr. Klemper. We will leave it to you to discover who plays Dr. Klemper, but he is a psychiatrist, interviews Chloe Grace Moretz's dancer in the very beginning of the film. She has escaped. She's a patient of his, let's say. Um, and she's been visiting him from the academy, sharing these theories that he thinks are delusions about what's going on there. He becomes a very prominent character throughout the film. That's added. There are doctors in the original, but this is much more of a different take on that. Susie's past, the Dakota Johnson character's past, we go back to her childhood living on a Mennonite farm, particularly uh, the deathbed of her mother, and then get some flashbacks that indicate the tension, possible abuse going on there. Uh, Another through line that is added uh, in this film. And then I would say I watched the original Suspiria a couple weeks ago now, but I don't recall that there was turmoil among the witches, something of a power struggle, disagreements, especially when it comes to how they should handle Susie in particular. So as I said, there are other things that are added here. I'm wondering if any of this added something to you for the experience of Suspiria. What here was was worthwhile or proved fruitful or maybe answered the question of why would Guananino want to make this now? What did he want to do with it? Mm-hmm. Any answers in some of those elements? Well, I did not listen to the orders of our esteemed producer, Sam Van Halgren, the one who back in 2005, when we talked about the original Suspiria as part of our horror movie marathon, he derided the film as basically written by a 12 or 13-year-old. He hated Suspiria. Not a fan. And I don't remember where it fell in the marathon, but actually at the time of its review, it was my favorite movie in the marathon. We were both seeing it for the first time. That's why we used those marathons. And I was a little bit wishy-washy on some of these details. I was recognizing all of these new aspects in the 2018 version, what seemed like new aspects to me, but couldn't be completely sure as I haven't seen the Argento Suspiria since 2005, and it sounds like my recollection was correct. Like so many horror films, that original Suspiria may have had real-world issues and anxieties on its mind, but if it did, they were predominantly allegorical. It's truly the tale of a young American dancer who comes to this academy and she finds out it's actually run by a coven of witches. Spooky things happen, people die in gruesome and elaborately staged ways, you get bright colors, that pseudo-prog rock score, that's Suspiria. Here, we've got the young American dancer, 
We've got the Coven of Witches, and we definitely have some gruesome deaths. I'm not sure that we get the elaborately staged ones, and maybe we can talk about that. The real-world anxieties are all made literal, mm-hmm. and you touched on a lot of them. Berlin, as a character, this divided city, is such a major aspect of this film in a way I don't remember from the original politically and geographically, obviously, with The Wall. Beider Meinhof and the terrorist crisis, that constantly being in the background. You mentioned that. Dr. Klemperer, his history, the way the Holocaust actually does come up a few different times. We have this sense of his own personal guilt and shame and the collective national guilt and shame 30 years removed from World War II being something that is omnipresent and still very much weighing on these characters and this city. Trauma in general is a major aspect of this film. You mentioned the other one I latched onto, Susie Banyan's past, and we get some flashbacks to her childhood and the way she was raised. Another part here is the feminist angle. You go back to that opening scene. You touched on it. Chloe Grace Moretz is this young dancer. Basically, Susie Banyan comes in and takes her place. She's going to this Dr. Klemperer to get help. She believes that there are witches at the academy, that they are out to get her, and he is just sure that she's completely delusional. He's taking notes. He observes. He never actually tries to help her, at least in that opening scene. And the phrase in my head the whole time was, believe women. That's what I wrote down in my notes. And then later in the film, much later in the film, one character at least verbalizes that completely. But tied to that, what did resonate with me this time, Josh, was this sense of history and survival. I'm not going to say that I was rooting for the Coven of Witches or Tilda Swinton's Madame Blanc, who is the main instructor there, but I certainly did admire the strength and the resolve of this collective making this quite political, subversive art and doing it for 30 years and the implications of that, of the art being rooted in a struggle. There's a suggestion that they have been oppressed, probably as women, and they've had to survive through all this turmoil, and they're still standing. So the English major and the literalist in me loved having all of these ideas to latch onto. I think I'm naturally inclined to want to intellectualize material like this, or maybe I mean to say I want to believe I spent 152 minutes on a movie that actually had some depth to it. (laughs) But what I can't wait to hear from you, Josh, I can't help but wonder if in elevating the material, Guadagnino actually robbed it of most of its fun. Is, Is he suffocating it? Yeah. Well, it's a very, very different experience than the original Suspiria, and I'm glad he didn't try to remake. Yeah, the film, I mean, we we don't course. right, we don't need the same thing, but it's it's not a trip like the other one is. It's as gory in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. I, I would argue uh, it's scarier. I think in some ways for me than the original Suspiria, but I don't know if it adds up to more. I think if all of those things you just traced um, had a bit more connective tissue to the fact that these are witches. Um, I would be able to lend them more credence. There is a finale here that is fantastically over the top. It's a trip. That, that part is, is. I think you could say that is a trip. That's true. Um, I think a lot of those through lines you just mentioned, I'll have to do some more thinking. This is where I'm frustrated by immediately after the screening review because in the experience of watching it, 
I was having a hard time connecting those lines. Right. It was only when, for example, that one character literalizes it by mm-hmm. making the comment about you should believe women when they tell you something uh, and even references his past in a way that makes you realize, OK, so I guess I kind of see how this connects. But it still doesn't really – all of that could have happened without them being witches, if that makes any sense. I, the feminist angle is interesting because there's that line. Um, there is the early scenes where he is not believing Chloe Grace Moritz. And then the other moment that jumped out at me as cleverly feminist was when the two police inspectors come mm-hmm. to find out what might be going on here. And the witches cast a spell on them, bring them to a back room, has one of them pull down his pants and they're laughing at him. Uh, that was that was the moment where I realized there's hardly any you know men in this movie and that there could be this undercurrent as well. Um, but it doesn't – it's interesting you say you were rooting for the witches because I well, understand – rooting No, for no. Them. I understand that impulse. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I, I totally get what you mean. Yeah. But I don't know what they were all about. I never got a sense. The Tilda Swinton character is very much about the art and the dance. Mm-hmm. But it was almost like in the original film, it's just a front. The Dance Academy is just a front. Completely. Right? Yes. And, and I think that's what I'm latching on to that's different this time and that's is the, the art. And that's how I would answer my question. The one thing that I do think was added here that I do really appreciate um, is the fact that this movie takes the dance seriously and interweaves it with the fact that they are witches. In other words, the dancing is part of the witchcraft. And these sequences, the choreographer here is Damien Jalet. They're pretty stunning. I almost wish they weren't edited as frantically as they are. And we could just sit back. You know, a lot of times this happens with um, movie musicals where the dancing can be cut up too much and you Mm -hmm. can't see what's going on because this is some pretty stunning stuff. And it starts right away when Susie has her audition with Madame Blanc, the Tilda Swinton character. Um, It's very convulsive. All of the movement in this film is extremely convulsive in a disturbing way. Purposeful, powerful. It's not ballet. No, and there's a great line that uh, the Swinton's character says at one point, today we will break the nose of every beautiful thing. And that is how these dances are designed and performed. So they're creepy and unsettling before they get explicitly so. Mm -hmm. And I did appreciate that. Um, I will, there's a production about two thirds of the way through the costume design is fantastic in this, the lighting as well. Um, And it's a parallel cut sequence with a victim. Let's just say Mm -hmm. that's really eerie how those two things work together. And the one thing that did carry me through the climax, which just got a little too much for me again, because I didn't have anything really to hold on to there except for, as grotesque as it was, mm-hmm. there was, despite the Tilda Swinton character's line, some beauty in the formation and the color at work in uh, this really gory climax. So I was able to latch onto that the way the movie took dance seriously, incorporated it to its story, and gave it some meaning and some heft. Mm-hmm. I don't know that it did that with some of those other threads we've been discussing. Yeah, I think it has a lot of threads, and like you, at least as we're discussing it, having come from it, I'm not sure that they do really add up to a lot. You mentioned that line about breaking the noses. I think it might be in that same speech, actually, was a line I wrote down, which is, and I'm paraphrasing, we're past the time of dance being beautiful Mm -hmm. and cheerful. And I think that fits with the overall design 
of this film, the look of this film, in stark contrast to the original Suspiria, which is all those bright colors. This is so muted and so drab, these streets of Berlin. And it really does make sense where all of this inner turmoil and this anxiety and this violence all seems to be coming out of this time of turmoil and even kind of within the streets, a sense of degradation. So there isn't much beauty and there certainly isn't really any cheer or cheerfulness, even though I think you can find beauty in some of those performances just in terms of its strength and its power. And did you catch the name of that dance, the one they're performing? They're saying it's the last time they're ever going to perform mm -hmm. it, that they did it originally in 1948. Again, the sense of history, the sense of these witches always being there and being sort of a foundation, even through all this turmoil. It's Volk, which is folk, of course. It means people. And I think that ties back to this idea of the collective national guilt and shame and the violence of some of those movements and the way that we see red so prominent there, which obviously to me suggests blood and bloodshed. It gives me the idea anyway that they are commenting on the way a lot of Germans, perhaps even like Dr. Klumper, who becomes really a main character in this film, did stand by and let all of this horror happen. And as I talk about it, I think about the fact that, yes, he starts out the film not believing the girl, and he assumes that she's delusional. And by the time we see him much later in the film, that's not the case at all. Actually, he's probably gotten way more involved than he has any sense to be. But I think it, again, ties back to this acknowledgement on his part that in his past, he was perhaps too passive and let some things unfold that maybe he should have stood up for. And I am suggesting in his own personal life, as the movie suggests that, but yeah. also maybe, again, tied to these larger horrific acts of the Nazis. We did talk about the feminist angle here, and it's something it seems like both of us responded to at least a little bit. And yet one of the things that seems different to me from the original film, and I'm not sure for the better, is the way Dakota Johnson's Susie Banyan becomes almost a peripheral character in this film. I like intellectually a decision they made with her character in terms of how much she may really know about what's going on here. That's yeah. something that we could talk about if we were really getting into spoilers. But nevertheless, as Dr. Klemperer becomes such a main character, as Sarah, another dancer who's her best friend, becomes such a main character, I really felt like she was on the outside. And what I mean is I didn't see her making any active choices maybe until the very end of the film, the way I saw all these other characters making choices. Yeah, and, and it, we'd probably have to get into spoilers to discuss that too much. Uh, just to jump back quickly, Sarah, who you mentioned, played by Mia Goth, a great performance. Mm -hmm. I was trying One of those people in the cast I was trying to identify what where did I'd we just seen see her, her before. I saw her in A Cure for Wellness, um, and I know she's done other stuff as well, but that's what I was thinking of. Um, really strong performance here, possibly better than Dakota Johnson for me, Maybe because of what you're talking about, that it's you can't really say she gets sidelined because she um, plays a central part. But mm -hmm. it does feel a little bit that way. Here, here's maybe the issue and the problem is – and it's related to what you're saying. What's the general narrative drama here? Mm -hmm. Like what – what are we supposed to be – what tension are we supposed to be focused on? Is it Klemperer? Is it Susie and the decisions that she may or may not be making? Um, is it Madame Blanc and her role among these witches? Uh, yes. This, <laughs> yes. 
Correct. And it would be difficult for a movie to sustain all yes. of those in a compelling yeah. way. And it makes also, it fractured. It's, it's fractured in a way that uh, I don't think is entirely successful. And they don't all come together at the end in a way that's satisfying either. I keep coming back to this. And I do think it's interesting timing. That's the only way I can describe it, that here we are in 2018 and Guadagnino is making a movie that's a remake of a movie from the 70s set in the 70s that is so focused on the Holocaust to me. And maybe I'm just going for the most obvious reading here. But those three character arcs you just talked about, Mm -hmm. they're the arc of characters going from a state of denial to knowledge. And I think that denial is meant to tie back to all of those people who stood there and drank their tea as the trains were taking the Jews out of town to these camps. That's that collective sense of denial. And we get it in three different ways here with the doctor, with Sarah, who all say, this isn't happening. This isn't real. But then when they're faced with it, when they finally confront the horror of it, they then act. They can't do anything but act. And I think even this is where we will not get into it because it truly would be spoilers. But I think you can even see that to an extent with Tilda Swinton's character. Tilda That's Swinton's character. Ask. She really becomes someone who, and I'm dancing around it here, but she becomes someone who, rather than accepting a certain way things are supposed to be, this is the destiny of this. She, in a moment, decides to reject that. And I see it, I guess, as tying back to those other ones in the sense of it becoming much more active and not passive. She becomes a participant in this as opposed to the one who is just doing the bidding of someone else. That gets into there's almost like a good witch, bad witch divide that starts to develop. And I'm not sure that's entirely consistent either, especially with the epilogue we get. Um, and I would also say that Susie, to me, is is not a character that comes into any awareness. She's She's almost. No, I can't see how she fits into that. Right. But I think her character is not that interesting because she's essentially – Dancing here, um, coming into fruition. Does it, Dancing, you, no pun intended. Yeah, sorry. No, you're right. Uh, you know what I mean? Like, it, it's almost like when we fu- – in retrospect, when we fully understand those flashbacks, there's really not as much interesting stuff going on as maybe we thought. I agree. Um, and maybe that's partly I don't our think she was problem. Denying anything. Maybe that's partly our problem that we came in not expecting this movie to be – just like the original Suspiria, but expecting that we were really going to follow the main character and right. the predicament and the ordeal she's going through, we would be going through it with her. And that's really not the case here. She's aware of things that we only become aware of yes. by the end of the film. Yeah. That reminds me, one thing I did want to mention as being very effective were the dream sequences that, uh, man, surreal, creepy, quickly edited montages and we're told fairly early on that these are dreams the witches inflict upon the students almost nightly. And Susie especially gets some particularly horrific ones. I think this is why it feels scarier to me. Those mm. were really upsetting. And especially when you learn, okay, if they're being if their dreams being visited upon her, we can't trust what she's not necessarily remembering these things, mm. right? Yeah. No, um, you're right. These are things that they're almost messing with her memory. Um and that's some creepy filmmaking going on there. I agree. Now, one of the things I mentioned is that we do get a fair number of death scenes here. There's not a ton of them. But the ones that we do get are gruesome. 
I said they maybe weren't that artful. And I guess as I reflect back on Argento's film, that was one of the things I actually did really appreciate was the aesthetic value of those scenes. Because I certainly don't love the gore of it, but there is a certain precision to them. There's a sense of humor to them even. And that is not here in any of these scenes. We are really just watching these characters suffer. That was my sense of it. Hmm. Now, there are ways to argue with that because there is some cross-cutting and it's not just a matter of, literally watching someone suffer but that was what i took away from it as opposed to really buying into the suspense of it in the original suspiria the way those scenes played out so slowly sometimes and he really built up the terror here i never felt that with these scenes i really felt like i was being bludgeoned the way the characters were being bludgeoned you know i felt like the original Suspiria had a streak of sadism to it. Hmm. Um, and I'm and suggesting the opposite here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's and, and it's almost like humor. You know, horror can be equally subjective. Um, I think especially of the the scene where the character falls into the room of barbed wire. And, and you're right. Like maybe humor is part of the intention there because it does go on forever. But it, it felt a little sadistic to me here. I found it... Um, troubling in a way that was I don't know, more honest isn't isn't necessarily the right phrase but it was tied into the the dancing and the physicality of that i think the mm-hmm. first gruesome death we see is a a strange possession sequence where yes. uh, Susie is she's passed her audition at this point but she's performing in a rehearsal and the movement she makes because of the witch's machinations have um, are being visited upon another student who's in another rehearsal space, mm-hmm. violently visited upon her so that, um, you know, a jerk one way will essentially break her bones. It goes on a long time. Yeah. So I think maybe that I started watching through my fingers. Yeah, that's part of what you were feeling. I, I kind of yes. got the point, but it was really disturbing. And I think part part of it also is that it was playing with the idea of power and how this is happening. It wasn't just the physical effect. I, I do think the original Suspiria um, is a bit of a gore fest in that it gets to a point where it's all about this actual bloody effect that they have staged. The opening with the yes. shards of glass coming down. Yes. And it's it's all about how does that look, right? right? And there's a giddiness there. But that's, that was enough for me with that Suspiria. And that's exactly the opposite of this film. That's what definitely wasn't enough for Guadagnino. No, I think there's more going on here. Yeah. And, and at least in that scene, it's more interesting. Now, again, to get to that climax, um, it started to get to be a little bit more for me of the let's show off how gruesome and grotesque we can get. Um, that was kind of a long slog for me. <laughs> I, the whole time, Josh, was just thinking about how much fun, actually, that would have been to shoot and how much of a nightmare it would have been to shoot. But just imagining how many weeks they must have spent just on that finale. Maybe the the only obviously funny part is that a few scenes later, we get a quick cleanup shot. That's the first time where you actually get a joke in this film. Yeah, I thought so. It felt like that it to me as like well. It seems like it has to be deliberate because so. there's no way you can't laugh at it. It's so absurd. Yeah. And that was the first one I noticed anyway. Suspiria opened in New York and L.A. last weekend, I think. I think it's just on a couple screens, and then it's expanding to 250 screens around the country, including right here in Chicago this weekend. 
if you get a chance to see it and agree or disagree with our takes. Though I don't know how you can agree or disagree with us. We, didn't we really both just pretty much say anything. Walk the fence <laughs> with this Suspiria. You can email us feedback at filmspotting.net. November is here, Adam, which means award movies are here, which means biopics are here. With Bohemian Rhapsody on our minds, in which Rami Malek plays Freddie Mercury, we asked listeners to name their favorite music biopic performance of the last 20 years. We did that in the film spotting poll. Results are next, along with our top five uses of color in the movies. Stay with us. This is will play us on the radio. We need to get experimental. Thunderbolts and lightning, very, very frightening Do it again. One more. How many more Galileos do you want? Roger, there's only room in this band for one hysterical queen. Rami Malek as Freddie Mercury there in the trailer for the new Queen biopic, Bohemian Rhapsody. It opens this weekend. Now, I have not read any of the reviews, Josh, but according to our producer, Sam, they are not very good. It doesn't get us too excited about seeing this movie and talking about it, though. I know a lot of people just in my life in non-film circles who are very eager to see what Rami Malek does with Freddie Mercury and seeing those great Queen tunes play out on the big screen. Now, it says here in my notes, I didn't write this, you didn't write this, that Yes, of course, this is a movie I'm going to watch eventually, but might it be better to wait for some lazy Sunday afternoon when it's playing on cable? Possible. Yeah. Bohemian Rhapsody at this point seems like it might be best suited for that experience versus us taking it very seriously and talking about it for 20 or 30 minutes. But we don't have a lot in the way of other options. And to be honest with you, I don't even want to say this out loud. You can do it. I don't want to say it out loud because then I know it's going to make it the reality. I know listeners are going to want us to do this instead. Our other option. I know Sam wants us to do it instead. And I just think this is evidence. I need to get this on the record. It's Halloween week. Forget Jason. Forget Freddy Krueger. Forget Mike Myers. The biggest killer in the world right now is Sam Van Hogren, who says, says, Bohemian Rhapsody sounds kind of lame. I've got a much better idea. Oh, why don't you guys wrestle? He lays this on. Why don't you just wrestle with Orson Welles' (laughs) last film, The Other Side of the Wind? And you'll probably want to watch the documentary on Netflix that accompanies it from director Morgan Neville. Oh, and then just just for kicks, why don't you guys do a Sacred Cow review of Citizen Kane? Mm -hmm. I said I wasn't going to say it. I just said it. And he brought this up like a week before when we'd be recording this. Exactly. So, you know, don't give us a lot of time to prepare, to dig into this, to think about some of these films that aren't Bohemian Rhapsody. Right. I'm, uh, it's more intriguing to me. I think I already told you this, but it's so much more work. So much clock, more work. And the clock is ticking. Yes. 
I we need a third easier option. I think I would rather watch a movie about people singing about bicycles and needing somebody to love. We'll see. It might be it. <laughs> we will see. And I suppose we might hear from a few of our listeners with their thoughts on whether or not we should go down the Wells route or stick with Bohemian Rhapsody. Maybe there's a third option, Josh, we haven't even considered. You can email us feedback at filmspotting.net or leave us a voicemail 312-264-0744. Please save us. Please. Over at filmspotting.net, you can very often find advance screening passes, sometimes run of engagement passes to movies that are playing here in the Chicago area. And right now we have passes to a screening of A Private War and also A Boy Erased. Those are the week of November 5th. I think the 5th and the 6th. You can go to filmspotting.net slash events to get more information and to enter to win passes to both of those movies. See it before they hit theaters. We also, Josh, did have the release of our fifth edition of the Film Spotting newsletter. Still publishing. Yep. Your turn in the Q&A hot seat. Yeah, it was it was rough. It was kind of an intense question. Just what was what is the filmmaker who has most challenged how you view movies? Yes. Jeff Milo, does that sound Jeff right? Milo Jeff Milo from Dale Mission yeah, a with a great question. One. Now, I don't know if you noticed this or not, but the week before, it was the film spotting Q&A, Ask Adam. That's right. And Sam sent over the questions. He sent three questions. One of the questions was from Jeff Milo in Ferndale, Michigan. <laughs> Jeff <laughs> and is, I Jeff is just, a co-author? No, no it was, <laughs> which filmmaker most challenged you? It was that question. And I just chose to ignore it because it seemed too hard. Oh, you passed it on to I me. I passed it on to you. <laughs> and you fell for it. And you took the I date. didn't know that was an option. Who, who do I? I could have <laughs> passed it on to Sam. So you didn't notice. And I just screwed it up by letting the cat out I'm of the gonna bag. I'm going to do that next time. You had a very good answer, though, Josh. And I encourage anyone out there, if you are not currently subscribed to the Film Spotting newsletter, to get it. You can go to filmspotting.net or click on our episodes page there. The link is right at the top of our website, and you can see the past editions of the newsletter. We also have, on that events page I mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. there's information about your Austin meetup. I'm still mad. I'm still really mad that you're getting to Austin before me, and you're going to hang out with Film Spotting listeners, and I'm not going to be there. But I can't do anything about it, so... Have fun, Josh. I think it's going to be a good group. Already heard from a bunch of people. And yeah, if this might be a little late for a lot of folks, but if you happen to be downloading this right away when we posted it and you live around Austin, we are going to meet Saturday, November 3, 7.30 p.m. at Craft Pride. So all of that will be on our events page if you want to get those details. And I hope to see some of you there. There, We're rivaling the Seattle numbers. It's getting close, Adam. This could, prepare yourself, could be a big bill. Big bill. Did you set up an RSVP page for this one too? So you have a sense of who's coming or is it all just via social media? Yeah, we've got that on there too. So um, check out the events page and find a way to RSVP there. A quick look back at last week's show. We did review pretty much everything that was out. New movies, new-ish movies on Netflix. We talked about Jeremy Sonier's Hold the Dark and Tamara Jenkins' Private Life. We also got Josh on Marielle Heller's Can You Ever Forgive Me? And another one on Netflix right now, Nicole Holofcener's The Land of Steady Habits. I shared a few thoughts on Frederick Wiseman's Monrovia, Indiana. That opens here in Chicago and elsewhere this weekend. I do recommend it. And just to digress for one second as we talk about these movies on Netflix that we reviewed on our last episode, we only got one complaint email from a listener. And their complaint was, 
I don't like Netflix, so I didn't listen to the show. And it was interesting because Sam and I talked about how to name that episode, and we thought it kind of made sense to frame it. The two main movies we talked about were new on Netflix, so someone looking at that who does have Netflix might say, oh, they're not just talking about two random movies, they're talking about two movies that I can see right now streaming. And there was a third. If I have a subscription, and there was a third, The Hall of Center. But we didn't pick those movies because we cared about the platform they were on. We didn't Correct. choose them because they're on Netflix. We chose the two movies because we actually thought they were the two most interesting films to talk about that week. In a lot of ways, if we had never put new on Netflix in the title, that same listener would have listened to that show, and it wouldn't have been any different than us talking about some movie that's only playing in Chicago or New York and L.A. that you can't get to. And yet, a lot of people still listen to those conversations. I'm bringing this up just because... I am kind of curious. I've been thinking about setting up a little survey over at filmspotting.net. Maybe I'll do this in the newsletter. I'd be curious to know, just for our own internal reasons, not for any advertising reasons, how many of our listeners do subscribe to Netflix? If we do future shows like that, is that a good idea? We wouldn't do them often, but if we were, does that Netflix angle actually hold some weight for the majority of listeners, or are there quite a few out there that don't have them or don't like Netflix and it doesn't do anything for them. Well, it's a, an interesting question too, because would you ever disregard a filmmaker whose career you're interested in, you've been following because of where their film was available? I mean, as you say, like no. we were very much driven by uh, Sonier and I've been a fan of Tamara Jenkins' previous work and Hall of Center. We both like a lot. So those were the driving factors. I just can't imagine saying, well, I may not have this platform or disagree for some reason with this platform, Mm -hmm. so I'm going to disregard those filmmakers. I don't think we'll ever get to that point. No, and again, we only got one complaint, but it was interesting for me to think about how many people we were serving, I guess, with that episode. That may be something that we do ask for a little bit more feedback on in an upcoming newsletter. Last week, we also played Massacre Theater. That's where we perform a scene from a well-known film, and you get a chance to win a film spotting t-shirt. If you haven't gotten around to listening to that last edition of Massacre Theater, it contained one of my favorite moments in the history of Massacre Theater. From you, Josh Larson, here's what you missed. What about your agent? You hear anything yet? Nope. What do you think is going on? Could be anything. You've been checking your messages? Obsessively. Huh. Are you talking about when I when I broke character? <laughs> yeah, Sam is allowing that to function as yet another tease. If you haven't heard it, you <laughs> will have to go back and listen to that episode and that edition of Massacre Theater because that was hilarious as evidenced by the fact that I laughed through the rest of the yeah, scene. I, actually, I broke character. You broke character. I, I stayed ended up breaking in character. character. That's true. You stayed in character throughout. You just added some dialogue, but you stayed in character. Now, <laughs> You did, with your voice work, throw a lot of people off. This so we're is gonna, what I'm hearing. Yeah, we're going to give another hint here if you haven't already entered or if you entered and entered with the wrong answer because a lot of people, and now I see it, as soon as they started coming in, it made sense to me that they thought your take on that Californian's accent there was actually a lot like Nicolas Cage. So we got a lot of adaptation entries. Nicolas Cage, specifically an adaptation. Yes. Okay. I can see that. I think it's because of the reference, was... the reference to the book publisher. Yeah, yeah, especially Donald, I think. There might be a little bit of Donald in there. I wasn't thinking of that, but I can no. see what they mean. And Donald Kaufman is not the character Josh was playing. If you know what film we massacred, email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. You have a little bit of time. The deadline is Monday, November 5th. Hey, Brian. Yeah, I love that. Brian. Yeah. I think you might have screwed up here. Really? 
Let me see. Well, you've got Lyle playing in D, and the rest of us are in A major. Yeah, that's right. How does that work? Two bass lines in two different keys? Well, it works in my head. I mean, it's all playing in my head, the orchestration, and the five vocal parts. I think it's going to work. Let's try it. Time for the film spotting poll, starting with the results of our last poll question. You just heard Paul Dano as Brian Wilson in 2015's Love and Mercy. Dano, much to the chagrin of many listeners, it seems, not one of the options we gave you when we asked this question inspired by the new Queen biopic. What is the best music biopic performance of the past 20 years? We gave you these options. Kate Blanchett as Bob Dylan and I'm Not There. Marion Cotillard as Edith Piaf and La Vie en Rose. John Cusack as Brian Wilson, the older Brian Wilson in Love and Mercy, Jamie Foxx as Ray Charles in Ray, Ethan Hawke as Chet Baker in Born to be Blue, Jason Mitchell as Easy e in Straight Outta Compton, or Joaquin Phoenix as Johnny Cash in Walk the Line. If you didn't like any of those options, maybe you wanted to write in and tell us who we overlook from the same movie, you could have voted other. Josh, how did it come out? Jason Mitchell's Easy e is in last place with 4% of the vote. Then came Ethan Hawke's Chet Baker. He received 6% of the vote. The other option got 7% of the vote. And then John Cusack's Brian Wilson at 8%. A little bit of a jump here where we get to Jamie Foxx as Ray Charles with 15% of the vote. Marion Cotillard's Edith Piaf, 16%. Kate Blanchett's Bob Dylan, 17%. Jumping ahead in first place, Joaquin Phoenix's Johnny Cash, 26% of the vote. Aaron Bergstrom asks, why is John Cusack on here but not Paul Dano? He'd be my pick for the best of the past 20 years. The scene of him working out the many sound effects and layers of music on Pet Sounds is as close to a glimpse inside the mind of a musical genius at work as cinema has ever been able to conjure. I do love that scene. I like that movie. I love that scene, one that I think was an honorable mention for me when we did our top five classic rock scenes in movies list. Agreeing with Aaron is Chris Massa from Pittsburgh. I'm going with Cusack. I'm not sure if it's the best on this list, and I agree with all the praise for Paul Dano, but it's the one I was the most surprised by. Not only does Cusack look nothing like Brian Wilson, but he's never struck me as the most versatile or chameleonic actor. The fact that he disappeared into the role was a pleasant surprise for me, and it was a movie and a performance that I genuinely loved. So yeah, for better or worse, Cusack it is. Lisa Nelson writes in, with both Love and Mercy and Walk the Line, it's hard to pick one actor in each film over the other cast members. Dano and, to a lesser extent, Elizabeth Banks are just as great, if not better, than Cusack, while Reese Witherspoon is an equal part of what makes Walk the Line such a moving biopic. In many ways, we are watching the story of the rise and fall and the rise again of Johnny and Brian through June's and Melinda's eyes. Great point. In both Love and Mercy and Walk the Line, the story is all that more compelling for the performances of the female leads, and Paul Dano is so heartbreakingly emotive and real as the young Brian Wilson that we become all the more deeply invested in needing to see him escape his immobilizing depression. Jay Spencer has a suggestion here. If Cusack wins, will he give half the prize money to Paul Dano? I mean, come on. (laughs) Fair enough. Jay, I do have to throw in here real quick. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you are aware of this, but I am planning in the next three or four months to be out in New York City, and... I am 100% determined to make happen seeing a little play you may have heard of called True West by Sam Shepard being performed by Paul Dano with a contestant in this poll question, Ethan Hawke. Whoa. Take that, Austin. Now, we had such a great conversation. I am just sure. He'll let you backstage. He's going to reach out and he's going to, or maybe he'll just see me there in the crowd and he'll invite me back and we'll hang. Uh I know that's going to happen. Along with Patty. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) 
Maybe try to reach Ethan through Patty. We'll see if Patty Clarkson shows up as well. That brings us to our new poll question, looking ahead several weeks to Barry Jenkins' If Beale Street Could Talk. That's going to open in limited release on November 30. It's the follow-up to Jenkins' Oscar-winning Moonlight. So we've been thinking about how other directors followed up their Best Picture wins. That led us to this question. What is the best follow-up to a Best Picture win and... We're going to clarify this and say since 1970. Yeah, we just kind of arbitrarily chose 1970. So, Josh, the options. The Exorcist, which was William Friedkin's follow-up to The French Connection. The Conversation, Coppola's follow-up to The Godfather. Broadcast News is what James L. Brooks made after Terms of Endearment. And The Talented Mr. Ripley, that was from Anthony Minghella, who had just made The English Patient. Zero Dark Thirty came from Catherine Bigelow after The Hurt Locker. And Alejandro Gonzalez in Yaritu's Birdman, after he made that, he went on to make the great The Revenant. Yeah. We'll give you the other option as well. We will. Let's talk about Francis Ford Coppola, though, for just a second. 1972, he makes The Godfather. It wins Best Picture in 73. In April 74, he makes The Conversation. It's nominated for Best Picture in 75. December 74, so just, what, eight months after The Conversation, he makes... A little movie called The Godfather Part 2, and that wins Best Picture in 75. So it was competing against his own film, The Conversation, in 1975. 74 was such a good year. And then in 78, he made Apocalypse Now. So The Conversation is chronologically the follow-up to The Godfather. And we're intentionally leaving out Apocalypse Now because we figured it would dominate the poll. I don't know if that's true or not, but it seems like a likely candidate. It's also in the film spotting pantheon, so we are excluding it. Now, not just from the top five, but poll questions, too. Oh, at okay. At least for this week. Is this, this is just a rule for this week. Yeah, more arbitrary sure, decisions of here. Mainly from our producer, Sam, and he's the producer. He can do what he wants. So, Josh, you know which one I'm not voting for because there's only <laughs> one movie from that list that I'm not a fan of. Yeah. And you're not going to want to hear the movie I am voting for. Well, I can tell you because you're not voting for The Revenant, I will be. Really? Oh, yeah. That's funny because then I'm voting for the one that is the well, last place finisher for you. Vote for it. You're going to go Exorcist. Exorcist. All right. What a one-two punch. Freaking the made the French connection balanced. and then the Exorcist? Come on. Those are all good movies except for The Revenant. Those are all good movies. <laughs> I enjoy them. But yeah, The Exorcist is a follow-up to The French Connection. What a one-two punch. We want to know what you think. You can vote now at filmspotting.net. We'll go ahead and give you some other options if you don't want to do the digging on your own. Woody Allen's Interiors. Not one of his better films, probably, but a good movie. And his follow-up to Annie Hall. Clint Eastwood followed Unforgiven with A Perfect World. Jonathan Demme's Philadelphia came right after Silence of the Lambs. And the Coen brothers did make Burn After Reading right after making No Country for Old Men. And we did kind of decide, less arbitrarily, that the Coen brothers have been banned from all poll questions because they do truly seem to dominate. I don't know if Burn After Reading would have been the movie that gave them yet another victory in the film spotting poll, but... It has its admirers, but this this might be the one that they don't win. Again, you can vote now at filmspotting.net. If you leave a comment, and we hope you do, please let us know where you're listening from. All right, question for you, Adam. What is your favorite color? I mean, that's kind of a personal question. Come on, give it up. Blue. It's boring. (laughs) It's blue. All right. I'm going to expect a lot of blue in this week's Film Spotting Top 5, Uses of Color in the Movies. That's next. Stay with us. Pink, pink. Think pink when you shop for summer clothes. Think pink 
Pink, pink if you want that Kelkishos. Red is dead, blue is through, green's obscene, brown's taboo, and there is not the slightest excuse for plum abuse or chartreuse. Think pink, forget that Dior says black and rust. Think pink, who cares if the new look has no bust? Now, I wouldn't presume to tell a woman what a woman ought to think, but tell her if she's got to think. Think pink for bags, pink for shoes, Wanted to sneak in a quick donation and thank you segment here, starting with Aaron Crabtree in Washington, D.C., who sent some of his hard-earned dollars our way. In support of the show, he also made a Golden Brick recommendation. Hey, guys, I wanted to recommend A Prayer Before Dawn from A24 and director, oh boy, Jean-Stéphane Sauvier as a Golden Brick candidate. Hope Close I got enough. that right. I watched this a little while back and was really blown away by it. The cinematography and sound design are stellar. Joe Cole, who also stars in Green Room, was fantastic. I had such a visceral experience with the film, and it just seems to have flown under the radar with everyone. As always, thank you for putting on such a great show. Thank you, Aaron, for that recommendation. We appreciate it, and of course, for the donation. Now, Josh, we also got a Silver Club donation from Deborah in Austin. Deborah Joyner, I believe, is who we heard from. Is she currently on? Your that RSVP sounds familiar. List. I think Deborah might be coming out along with so her is husband. She, is she buying their drinks in advance? I don't know. I mean, that'll cover that'll cover part <laughs> She's of the helping night. Out. <laughs> Thank you, Deborah, for that. And finally, a gold level donation comes to us from Mary McEnroy. She's in my old stomping grounds, Iowa City. She sent us a check in the mail, came to our P.O. box, and a nice handwritten letter. It says, here's my payment for a year of solid movie entertainment. You've made me rekindle an early love of films that I had forgotten about during work years and child-rearing years, etc. Thanks for my new old passion, Mary in Iowa City. She adds, P.S., are you going to review The Wife? It's definitely worth seeing. We have gotten a screener of yeah. The Wife, Glenn Close, in that I feel like I hadn't even heard of it somehow until I got that screener, but then I looked it up and I really do want to see it. Yeah, and probably one that's going to come up around acting honors discussions at the end of the year. So I think we'll get to that at some point. I think we will. Thank you, Mary. Thank you, Deborah. And thank you, Aaron, along with everyone else who is a monthly donor to the show. You really do keep us doing what we're doing. Toto, I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. Dorothy going technicolor there in The Wizard of Oz. We're not in Kansas anymore, and The Wizard of Oz is not in this week's film spotting top five uses of color in movies. Wizard of Oz is in the film spotting pantheon. That means it's excluded from top five consideration. And Josh, there are actually a lot of titles that definitely could qualify for this list that we've excluded. Blue Velvet, Do the Right Thing. Some colors are coming to mind, right? As For I sure. These 2001, The Red Shoes, it's right there in the title, Royal Tenenbaums, and Vertigo with that eerie green is what I think of right away. Absolutely. And I think even Steven Soderbergh's Out of Sight is a movie that could come up, certainly well used in some key sequences. The big one, I think, that is tough to leave off, Vertigo. I mean, Vertigo is yeah. the number one answer to this question, right? I mean, I hate to be boring and go with conventional wisdom, but Vertigo is the best use of color in cinema. 
It would probably be on my top five for sure if I was able to pick it. There were so many good options. Someone on Twitter mentioned that really these should be all Technicolor films, yeah. and you could go that route, or you exclude I think. Technicolor. Or you could yeah, have gone either throw route. it aside. Um, so this was really difficult, and I did. That's how I winnowed things down. I just asked myself. I looked at all the titles that people suggested, the ones that came to mind, um, and just said, "What are the five that, without a doubt, if someone just..." walked up to me and said that title before anything else I thought of a color. Okay. Yeah. And and that's that was like my bottom line criteria mm-hmm. and it it really helped. Thought of a single color? A single color. Oh, see, interesting. I didn't go that route. I thought of it just in terms of the color being the dominant aspect of the sure. film. Or that the would use work of too. colors. Yeah. yeah. In terms of not the acting, not the storyline, not other camera movements or choices or editing, really just the use of color. Yeah. I was a little more single minded. I like it. All right. Let's hear your number five. Lola Montez from 1955. And so, yeah, what is that color for Lola Montez? This is Max Ophel's final film and his first in color, actually. For me, it's a bruised purplish blue, sort of like uh, a blueberry that's being squeezed between your fingers. Uh, This hue is reserved for the framing sequences at a circus where the title character, this notorious 19th century courtesan played by Martine Carroll, serves as the strange main act. She's brought out in lavish decorum before the crowd, and they're entranced by her, but they also kind of disrespect and even jeer at her. And the movie itself is filled out by flashback scenes that detail the public affairs that have made her so famous. So those circus scenes, I mean, yeah, Lola Montez doesn't just use one color at all, right? They're really wild in the almost technicolor elements you get there. The maestro of the circus sports this uh, this bright green wig and even eyebrows. The ring itself is bathed in a pulsating red. But what does linger for me is that uh, wounded blue. And it's pretty much reserved for Lola when she comes into the show. And that's appropriate because Lola could be seen, I think we might have talked about this when we reviewed the film, Adam, as part of our Max Ophel's marathon. She could be seen as representing the universal actress, okay? A woman who's uh, leered at by an audience and, and also judged by the audience. And there's even a moment in the film where Lola says, I'm not a machine for scandal, but those blue-tinged sequences at the circus suggest that she's been reduced to that. We did this marathon in 2013, and while Lola Montez, I think, is, we'd both agree, definitely worth seeing, for me, it's not entirely representative of Ophel's black and white work. I think maybe the movie I'd point you to is Earrings of Madame de mm-hmm. as the one you don't want to miss from his films. Uh, but for this list and for the use of color in those circus scenes, Lola was a perfect fit. Yeah, it's a great film. And the culmination of that marathon and the culmination of his work in a lot of ways, though, you're right, it stands out because of its use of color. In fact, if I remember right, it was Eastman color, which is a particular type of color film and processing that eventually did replace Technicolor. Some of the movies here, as I glance real quick at a list that were also shot with Eastman Color, 2001, A Clockwork Orange, and two movies that I'm positive are going to come up later, one on your list and one on mine. So I'm going to leave it there. My number five is maybe a little bit of an odd choice because I don't think of it certainly as a beloved film. It's not even a beloved film by me. But honestly, when you threw out this top five, It's the first movie that popped in my head. And I couldn't think of only one color to associate with it because 
it is multicolored in almost every scene. And that's really the wonder of The Fall, a movie that came mm-hmm. out in 2006 from director Tarsem. He also made The Cell. And it's set in L.A. in the 1920s. And we have an immigrant girl who's in the hospital recovering from an accident. And she's with Lee Pace, who plays a Hollywood stuntman, if I remember right. And he is badly injured. They develop a relationship, and he has an agenda. He's telling her a story in order to try and get some things from her. And one of the things I was reminded of in reading up about this movie, because it has been since 2006 since I've seen it, it's his story. He's telling her this elaborate tale to kind of string her along, but it's in her imagination. It's not his version of the story. She misunderstands him initially when he mentions a character who's Indian. He means Indian like Native Americans, and she thinks the country, India. So everything we see plays out from that childlike sense of imagination. And even before we get to that tale, it's pretty striking in its use of color. In the hospital, it's got these cream and green walls, and a lot of blacks are mixed in with that. A lot of shadows that do suggest that there are mysteries in this hospital that are waiting to be unlocked. Then when we do get into the fantasy part... It reminds me a little bit of Lawrence of Arabia, but on steroids, the piercing blue sky, desert sand so yellow and vivid that it almost burns your eyes. And then even the characters themselves and the costuming, which is such a key part of it. It's not just about lighting for these lists, right? It's not about lighting only or location only. It is so much about the costuming. And we have a character who is an Indian character, an ex-slave, Charles Darwin, an explosive expert, and then the mass bandit who is Lee Pace's character. There's kind of a Wizard of Oz thing going on mm-hmm. in this movie where he's taking characters from their lives, characters she knows, and he's inserting them into these stories. But their costumes are so dramatically colored, one in a very bright yellow, one in red, one in green, and then the mass bandit in black and gold. I did find a quote from the director, Tarsum, about why he's so drawn to these colors, and he said, Indians love colors. That's his explanation. Especially the poorer you are, the more red and yellow you put in. And let's just say I come from a poor background and leave it there. So, of course, I can't validate that, but that's his explanation for why he's so drawn, especially to those reds and yellows. The movie is really well known beyond its use of color for its lack of CGI. There's no real special effects in it. There are real locations and real stunts. And I think that's where this sense of the natural and the unnatural, the fantasy and the everyday collide in Tarsum's work. We get a scene, for example, where they're out in the desert, and other than the brightness and the vividness of the colors, it seems like what we would expect from a desert, except then they'll come across a tree that's ablaze, and we get that orangish hue coming up out of that. Or the monolith, almost, they come across. I don't remember the exact particulars of the scene, but it's like a sail or a large white sheet that they come across, and it's splattered in blood. It seems like a Jackson Pollock painting has all of a sudden been dropped right into the middle of this desert. I do think that the movie is about those moments of spectacle as much as the close-ups of some of these characters' faces, where color is such an important part in terms of the costuming and the makeup and the background, what we see of it, depending on the depth of focus in the shot. But I could pick out 7 to 17 different shots of characters' faces that are incredible uses of color beyond the ones like the tree and the white sheet splattered in blood or other scenes that have 40 or 50 characters in it. But I think color is why you watch The Fall. It's the reason why 
it's worth seeing this movie. Even though there are elements of the story I definitely appreciate and performances I do enjoy, that's the reason to see it. Yeah, I really liked this when it first came out. And to your point, uh, just looking at my reviews, you were talking to your point about the locations, um, 18 countries is where they went to film this thing. So there's mm. a real array of actual places that you can feel. You're absolutely right. You feel that and and the color that's brought into those places. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, it's, and there is story here. Yeah, You know, I mean, we could use a list like this to highlight films that maybe that's all they have to offer is is a striking use of color. But The Fall is more than that too. I, 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 I want to stress. So really good film. All right, number four for me, it's, going to be a cheat here. I've got a pair for you, but I think it's going to be allowed because this will give a twist to my obligatory Wes Anderson pick. We'll see. It's the Grand Budapest Hotel. Okay. And Paddington 2. Now, if I you like mention it. either of those movies, I immediately think pink. Okay. Yep. In Grand Budapest, of course, it's the hotel itself, this layer cake of an edifice and appropriately the other extensive use of pink in that film is the packaging for Mendel's Bakery. Paddington 2, which I would say like its predecessor, leans very heavily on the Wes Anderson aesthetic, applies that same type of pink to the uniforms that are worn by the inmates at the prison where Paddington is mistakenly sent. So these uniforms, when we first see the prisoners and Paddington first goes there, they're traditional black and white. Actually, they look almost exactly like the ones worn by Ray Fiennes in the Grand Budapest Hotel. But then Paddington throws a red sock in with the wash and he turns everyone's uniforms pink. I also did want to include these films as a pair because I think they're using pink to do something similar, essentially bringing some decorum, some softness, some gentleness Mm -hmm. into situations and places, think jail or think wartime, uh, that are in desperate need of such things. So my cheat pick, Grand Budapest Hotel and Paddington 2. I'll definitely allow it, especially as Paddington 2 is a better film. My Come on now. You don't, you why would you double down on that one? <laughs> I mean, I believe it. My number 4 actually I think is a nice companion to both of those films, Josh, and I think that this color is so important to this film and it's not a color that you associate with very many films. I think that I can just throw out this color and you're going to know it. I did not share this with you in advance. All right. But that's how crucial this color is to the movie purple i'm thinking batman and the joker no that's a good choice i'll give you a hint much more recent much more recent purple purple (laughs) it's not the color purple okay um you're ruining my theory sorry i hope there are listeners out there yelling i'm sure there are yelling there are at their desks okay purple purple Um, the florida project it's lavender adam okay it's not purple If you had said lavender, I would have been all over it. I can't argue with that. You're absolutely right. I I see things too plainly, too simply. I don't see the nuance in the color, Josh. I'm going with The Florida Project, the Sean Baker film, because I love the film, and I know you love it too. I did want another recent film on this list. We're going to get to my top three here. They're going to be older. And I wanted one more recent than 2006, The Fall, because I do think there are a handful of filmmakers who we are both really high on, right now who are consistently doing great things with color. And I wonder if you thought about who those directors are who really do value color in their work right now. I'll save the names here for a little bit later. But one of them is absolutely Sean Baker. Tangerine would be Mm -hmm. another 
example, this film, The Florida Project, very different in its use of color. I also wanted a choice that represented a very thoughtful, artistic approach to color, but that was far more subtle, way more subtle than The Fall or my top three choices, where the use of color is truly, I think, always going to be the first thing anyone brings up when they talk about these movies. I don't think The Lavender is necessarily the first thing you're going to talk about with The Florida Project, and I think what this pick shows is that you don't have to be ostentatious to reflect a really keen eye. When I interviewed Sean Baker here on the show, I talked about a comment I saw in Film Comment where he had mentioned to the interviewer that he shot on 35 millimeter because he wanted every frame to be like a photograph. And that made me think about a postcard. In this tourist setting of Florida, right by Disney World, but we're staying at the Magic Castle that's next to Disney World, the sense that People go there for these incredible transcendent experiences and they grab that photograph like a movie frame and they send it back home to show people the incredible experience and the time that they're having. But just by being framed that way, you're removing all the context from the frame and you're just showing that thing that you want to highlight. In the Magic Castle, where Mooney and her mom, the main characters in this movie, live, that when framed a certain way like a postcard, it looks beautiful. That lavender color that's on every single wall bathed in the Florida sun it could actually seem magical and then what you get with the Florida Project as a film it provides the rest of the context outside that postcard and the Magic Castle what we see is a place of both fantasy and joy from the perspective of Mooney and it's a place that's fraught with threats and struggle and in some cases struggle born from some really bad choices the characters are making the way The cinematographer, Alexis Zabe, I hope I'm saying that right, the way he put it is the aesthetic of the movie is blueberry ice cream with a sour twist. This, for me, is the closest we're going to get to Wes Anderson being on the list, this heavy reliance on pastel colors, that lavender that we get here. And actually, I swear to you, I didn't realize this till I went back and looked at the newsletter, but Sam actually pulled the shot I had in mind from the Florida Project for an example of a frame that illustrates the use of color. It's the one where Mooney and her friend are looking at the outside in long shot of the Magic Castle and all that lavender, the rainbow yeah, overhead. The rainbow. And then on top of it, one of them's wearing a light blue T-shirt and the other one's wearing a light pink T-shirt. So this is one big Easter egg party in this frame and it's gorgeous. Even your beloved cigarette shot with Willem Dafoe when the manager walks out and he lights the cigarette and then the lights turn on there as it's dusk. We get that little orange from the flame and the cigarette and then that yellowish hue of the light that accentuates that lavender. I also came across an interview with the person who did the color timing on that film. It's a post-production website and they talked to him and he mentioned Baker giving him the instructions that he wanted it to always be real It always had to look real, but just up a notch. So it's not the fantasy world of the fall. It's going to be always incredibly natural, but look just slightly heightened to represent Mooney's perspective. And we definitely get that. So the first line in my written review for the Florida Project, the kids in the Florida Project need more lavender in their lives. So yes, it's it's great film, of course, and easily an honorable mention for me, almost squeaked onto my list. At number three... Now, usually I don't like to include the movie that inspired a top five list on my top five, mm. but color, it's for me, it's the defining element of the original Suspiria. For it's sure. 
the best thing about it. Uh, And I actually found color to be the most frightening thing about the original film. You get these, they're almost terrifying specters, these glaring reds and nauseous greens and ominous blues. They really do haunt the movie in an effective way. Dario Argento clearly has a favorite among those three colors, though. I mean, red goes from, at first you think it's going to be a motif, uh, then it quickly becomes a cliche, and pretty soon it's an all-out obsession that Mm -hmm. you just have to get on board with. I love even at the opening when this Susie, played by Jessica Harper, arrives at the airport, the lounge in the airport has this eerie molten glow. And then on the taxi ride through the storm that she takes, the brake lights from the other cars, they cast these, they're like stoplight slashes across her face. And then, of course, when you know it, pull up to the dance academy, the entire facade is essentially crimson. So it just goes on from there. I think the standout scene for me in terms of use of color is that moment, also production design, I would say, about midway through the film when the dance students have to bunk together on cots in a rehearsal space and these white sheets are hung up to give them a little bit of privacy. But essentially, they create these bizarre shadow shows from the red lights that are being projected from somewhere. That's what I love about Suspiria is that all of these colored lights are constantly projected throughout this academy, and no one questions that, right? It's just <laughs> apparently how it's supposed to be. So, yeah, color, it's Suspiria's calling card, so I had to put it on this list. Well, you wondered if my favorite color, blue, would come up in this top five, and it's right there in the title of my number three. No, I'm not going with Three Colors Blue, the Krzysztof Kislowski film, though I considered all three of those films sure. in that trilogy, but actually a film from the same year called Blue and it's from director Derek Jarman that I saw back as a film student. It's his 12th film, his final film. He was close to dying when he made the film from AIDS-related complications. And basically at this point, due to these complications, he was going blind and actually could only see in Shades of Blue. So the entire film, I think it's about an 80-minute film, 70-80 minute movie, is just a single frame of the color blue projected for the entire running time of the film. And then the rest is a soundscape. It's fascinating as an experiment, not just sensory in that it's requiring us as viewers to construct meaning out of the sounds, but in terms of a director bringing his vision to an audience. This is what every film ultimately is, an artist bringing their imagination, their preoccupations, their experiences, and their memories to the screen. And here Jarman's doing it in a literal way, since he only could see the color blue. And we get kind of two halves to the movie. One where he really focuses on the significance of the color blue and kind of sees the color blue as its own character. And then we also get ruminations on his life and his voice and colleagues talking about his life and reckoning with his past and reckoning with his future and losses from his life. It's all seen through that perspective. Oral DHPG is consumed by the liver so they've tweaked a molecule to fool the system. What risk is there? If I had to live 40 years blind, I might think twice. Treat my illness like the dodgems. Music, bright lights, bumps, and throw yourself into life again. And it is interesting to me that it came out the same year as Three Colors Blue, 1993. In that case, blue is meant to stand in for liberty, right? Kozlowski sent out with that experiment. He said, I'm going to take the three colors of the 
French flag, and I'm going to make a movie about each one. And blue stands for liberty, and we get in that film starring Juliette Binoche, a character who ultimately has to free herself from an emotional burden. And I know there is not an explicit connection between these two films. Derek Jarman, a British filmmaker, I'm quite certain was not thinking about the French flag and the notion of liberty, but I couldn't help but make that connection and think about how Jarman is restricted and he's confined by his lack of sight and his disease. And yet here he is still engaging with the world. And I'm not sure I want to argue that there's liberty in death or impending death, though for some people, obviously, there is a certain freedom from suffering that death brings. But I don't want to imbue death with a hopeful aspect. That said, there is in death, I suppose, a freedom to be even more personal, to be even more vulnerable, to be even more radical, which is what we see from Jarman here in terms of the lack of a direct narrative and using only that single blue image. I googled it to see if anybody had talked about both of those films being obviously so preoccupied with the color blue and coming out at the same time, and I didn't see anything except in 2005, The Telegraph did a film series, and I couldn't really ascertain exactly what the heart of the series was. It was about interviews with filmmakers on film, and they gave them a certain choice. They said, basically, we need you to pick a film that does X or means X to you. And the writer Sheila Johnston talks to Christopher Doyle, Wong Kar Wai's longtime collaborator, and he right away said, my choice is blue. And when she said, well, you mean the Kislovsky version? He said, of course not. Kislovsky represents a more intellectual aspect of filmmaking. Derek Jarman's Blue is one of the most intimate films I've ever seen. And when he said to her, it's an obvious choice, he argues that art has to be a celebration of life. And Blue is saying, this is all I have, blindness, walking towards death, but it's not too bad. Derek went well and will all go well if we live with his incredible energy and curiosity and graciousness and engagement. And that really is at the core of Blue. Sounds intense. That's one I still need to see, unfortunately. Uh, my number two, boy, you really narrowed in on one color as we were talking about at the top there. Um, and this is one on my list that actually is just a bunch of colors that come to mind when I think of it. It's the Umbrellas of Cherbourg. And I almost left this off as an honorable mention because it, it did get a lot of attention in our top five movie duets recently. I considered it there for my list and Michael Phillips actually put it on his but I just couldn't stub it this time. I mean, Jacques Demy's 1964 musical, it was an inspiration for La La Land in many ways, including its bold use of color. Both films do that. And it's not just the umbrellas, though that is what comes to mind right away. That's the pastel array we get over the opening credits, that overhead shot where we actually see them coming by in their different colors. It's also the costumes. It's also the walls in the rooms here. It's even the furniture in this movie that bursts with color. And it's something that's carried throughout the film. Uh, And this is all a perfect match for the heightened emotions that are at play. The story, once again, it involves two young lovers whose romance is interrupted by the Algerian War. Uh, Catherine Deneuve and Nino Castelnuovo are the stars. So how wonderful is the use of color here. Maybe this is the best way to describe it for someone who hasn't seen Umbrellas of Cherbourg yet. It's a movie musical. I'd be confident recommending that you watch with the sound off. I think you'd still get a lot of enjoyment from it if you did that. Hmm. So number two on my list, and now we'll 
probably have to go into my penalty box for a little bit. Yeah, maybe so, but a great choice for sure. And my number two, I think, is going to follow that one nicely, actually, in the sense that I think you could very much watch this Ingmar Bergman film with the sound off as well, the color being a big reason why. And I think it ties back to Suspiria, the original Suspiria and that use of the color red, but also the new Suspiria in the way it focuses on more psychological terror and characters faces and the way they look at each other we certainly get that in ingmar bergman's cries and whispers the opening credits set it all up it's the simple bergman approach just text on a background except this time it's a red background with white lettering and it cuts from those credits to nature and we're on the grounds of a manor house in the country it's idyllic it's peaceful you might even call it edenic and it does end the sequence on a tree, a very large tree there in this Garden of Eden setting. And then that fades to the whole screen being engulfed in red, which Bergman then utilizes as a transition device. Often in the film, we come out of that red to inside the manor house where we get even more red. And it's such a stunning image, actually. The first person we see is Liv Ullman. She's one of three sisters living in this house. And two of them are taking care of the other sister who is dying of cancer. And Liv Ullman's that first image, her strawberry hair against this white gown that she's wearing and the blanket that's white, white curtains in the room, but everything else about it is just ablaze with red. And we get that sense of white and angels and faith that Bergman is so concerned with. And then there's a lot of use of black, I think, to signify death. But then this overwhelming use of red as the color of blood, obviously, of mortality, of life. And you'll see a lot of writing about this movie that will suggest that Bergman's going for a sense of these characters being in a womb, which you would think of that as being safe, and comforting in some ways, but you never get a feeling of safety or comfort inside this space. And just as much as it's about life, that red and how it makes us think of blood also then makes us think of death, too. So there's that duality there, that duality that I think is constant in Bergman's work. Red also represents something kind of sinister and evil as a stand-in for what we imagine hell, a conventional hell to look like. But then red also signifies eroticism and lust. And there's, again, a duality there and that sensuality and pleasure should be one of life's rewards. But for so many of Bergman's characters, including in this film, it's more like a punishment. It's feelings that they're repressing or they're being forced to repress or it makes them think of feelings of regret. There's a quote of Bergman's about this film where he says in the screenplay, I say that I have thought of the color red as the interior of the soul. When I was a child, I saw the soul as a shadowy dragon, blue as smoke, hovering like an enormous winged creature, half bird, half fish. But inside the dragon, everything was red. Hmm. As soon as you say that title, I think of those walls, even more so yes. than the fade outs to red are yeah. the, the deep red walls of that house. The walls, so. the carpet, the yeah. upholstery on the chairs. It's intense. Yeah. All right. We're at number one, and that's where I put Ron, Akira Kurosawa's 1985 epic take on King Lear. His variation centers on uh, an aging warlord who's dividing his kingdom among three sons. Ron makes extensive use of the primary colors, red, blue, and yellow. Each son is identified with one of these hues. But when I hear someone say Ron, I think 
read. Absolutely. Right away. There's a Fandor video essay by Philip Brubaker. It's titled Kurosawa Color. And one of the scenes that he includes from Ron is of soldiers bearing these red banners while they ride horses across a green field. Uh, The video text says, red flows like blood from an open vein. And that's as good a description as any. As a matter of fact, red is, you know, literal blood later on in the film in some really striking sequences. Now, in his accompanying notes to the video, Brubaker wrote this, Kurosawa received training as a painter before venturing into the cinema, and his later works would benefit from his keen intuition about hues and their impact on the eyes and mind. By the time of Ron, the fourth color film he directed, Kurosawa had mastered the color palette for film. He'd painted every frame of the film 10 years earlier, and when his eyesight failed him on location, his cinematographers needed only look at his paintings to depict his vision. I think I first saw Ron while studying Shakespeare in college. It might have even been part of that course. And even though it was, you know, at that time and in that context, it was the literary aspect that would have been foremost in my mind going into the movie. When I finished watching it, all I could think about was the movie's use of color. Mm-hmm. I'd never seen a film with such a bold, intentional, and effective use of color before. And and really, I've seen very few cents, maybe a handful of the ones that we've talked about tonight. So Ron is my number one pick. Yeah, Kurosawa's use of red there is so striking that then when we saw Ryan Johnson's The Last Jedi – and saw how he used red in those battle scenes, you knew immediately that he was inspired and influenced For by sure. Ron. And of course, we get a lot of great use of red as well in that throne room sequence in Ryan Johnson's film. So The Last Jedi, an honorable mention for me. My number one, though, I am going to go with a film that Christopher Doyle was a collaborator on as a cinematographer with Mark Lee Ping Bin, and that is Wong Kar Wai's film set in 1962, in the Mood for Love, starring Tony Leung and Maggie Chung, who move into apartments right next to each other on the same day and come to find out that their spouses are having an affair with each other. And they then begin to develop their own relationship, going through some of the motions of kind of acting out what that type of affair would entail without necessarily taking the next step that they imagine, of course, that their spouses have. Vikram Murthy had some really nice thoughts on this film and color. In 2015 for IndieWire, it was his Criterion Classic Pick of the Week, and he says, But it's Wong's use of color that stays with you longer than any one sequence ever can. The film's breathtaking use of reds and blacks captures the suppressed intensity of their love, as well as the shadows where it must stay. His cinematographers create a colorful world of dark secrets with bursts of flame threatening to pop out from the darkness only to eventually stay there untapped. Red, again, is the maybe most dominant color here. I think a lot of people, when they imagine In the Mood for Love in their head, if they've seen it, they think about the red curtains and the red carpet and the red lips of Maggie Chung in some scenes. But more than that, it's just those warm tones of red, yellow, and orange. It's truly sensual, maybe the most sensual film ever made. It's inviting. Lush is the word that gets thrown out a lot, and rightfully so. And that's all contrasted with the grays and blues of life that we do see outside of these rooms that they're spending time together in. I actually think most of all, though, about a shot of Maggie Chung sitting at a table, stirring her coffee, and it's framed so that her light pink lips 
are emphasized in the frame on the left. It actually cuts off her eyes, the top part of her head. So we're really seeing those lips at the top of the frame and they match the pink in her flower dress, which also has blue and yellow and green in it. And then the saucer and the cup that she's using match that green exactly. There's a precision and a meticulousness to the design and the lighting that is really pleasing. But I think also it suggests order. And that matches their romantic choices where they've decided they're not going to be like their spouses. They're not going to give in and they are not going to violate these social codes that are dictating their behavior. Barry Jenkins, the Moonlight director, loves Wong Kar Wai. I think he talked about it in my interview with him and Naomi Harris on this show. And he did a segment for Criterion where he talks about the influence of Wong Kar Wai on his work. And the word he keeps coming back to for In the Mood for Love is yearning. There is this yearning that's really part of every frame of this film, and I think the use of color represents that yearning, too. It's something that seems slightly unattainable, something slightly fantastic, but it's not completely unnatural. It's still grounded in the everyday of their lives, which I think is what makes it so provocative, the sense that this future and this relationship is right there for them to take it, but they just won't or they just can't. So In the Mood for Love... My number one, use of color. When you watch that movie, it's almost as if, or at least in my memory, I think of watching red and yellow make orange. It's like yeah. the, the creation of a color <laughs> while you're sitting there watching. Sure. It's beautiful stuff. Those are our top five uses of color in movies. Josh, any honorable mentions? Oh, so many. Let me try to go through them quickly here. How about... Zong Yimo. I mean, you could have been, I think I didn't put him on because I could have chosen House of Flying Daggers, Curse of the Golden Flower, or Hero. All of those mm -hmm. use color amazingly well. Sin City almost squeaked on because I love those dashes of red and yellow. I think I've described them before. It's at, like Robert Rodriguez has broken into the Warner Brothers Film Noir Archive with a marker, a magic marker, and just gone wild. I almost made Sin City my number one just despite to spite Sam. To bug Sam. Yeah, our first <laughs> fight ever on the show. I really like the original Tron from 1982, and the original CGI work there and the way they use color is pretty effective. Another filmmaker that comes to mind, I'm sure when we think of color, is Pedro Almodovar, All About My Mother, the red and yellow there is maybe the one I would have mm, put on, but that's I really like the more recent. It's it's so wonderful, Giulietta, which didn't get a lot of attention, but is a great film. Uh, yeah, I did consider the Three Colors trilogy. A more recent one, Blade Runner 2049, that orange haze. And then really my number six or seven would have been Sean Baker's The Florida Project. So the original Blade Runner, of course, as well, a good candidate for this yeah. list. And that neon, you mentioned hero, Zhang Yimou. I have not seen that film, but it came up multiple times on social media. So that's one of my regrets. My other regret is All That Heaven Allows. Not enough Douglas Cirque yeah, we could in have gone my background. Here. We could do a Cirque marathon at some point. This is true, though, Josh. My first five honorable mentions are your five picks. Oh, really? Yes. Okay. Lola Montez, Ron, Suspiria, the original. The Umbrellas of Cherbourg. You could also go with The Young Girls of Rochefort, but mm -hmm. I think Cherbourg uses color a little more vividly. And the Grand Budapest Hotel. I may not love the movie. I love its use of color, and I can't put the Royal Tenenbaums on the list. So. so so let me get this right. You like the Grand Budapest Hotel. You just think Paddington 2 
is the better film. No, I don't even really like the Grand Budapest okay Hotel. I was I was mixed on it. I love its use of color. Oh, I really, just really like this Paddington hole deeper too. and deeper. So I said that there were three current filmmakers yeah. who are really at the vanguard of using color. Sean Baker, mm-hmm. one of them. The other two, I can't believe I didn't find room for this guy on my list. Nicholas Winding Refn. Yeah. Drive. The Neon Demon. I would have gone Neon Demon. Even Only God Forgives, a movie I don't particularly like. Eh. I do like its use of color. True. You can respect that aspect of it. And the other one would be the director we talked about just last week on the show, Jeremy Sonier. First two films with color in the title, mm-hmm. Blue Ruin, Green Room, and then Hold the Dark. Not a movie you would describe as colorful. There's a lot of darkness. There's a lot of black and white. Sometimes the white just coming from all the snow on the ground and the mountains. But I think that palette is still incredibly evocative. The absence of color is used really well and Hold the Dark. He'll get his due when we get to our top five movies with a color in the title. We haven't done that yet, have we? I think we have. Have we done that? As <laughs> I, I, was, say, as I was saying, I was like, that sounds familiar. You know, two more that I'll mention. Another British film, I think from the early 90s, like Derek Jarman's Blue, Peter Greenaway's The Cook, The Thief, His Wife, and Her Lover, and Nathaniel Myers, a very smart film spotting listener out there, mentioned a great one over email, a documentary with a great use of color. And again, like so many of our choices, it's tied to the idea of fantasy in the sequences we get in Joshua Oppenheimer's The Act of Killing. Ah, yeah, that is good. Think about just the poster of The Act of Killing. I know you can see those purples and greens and blues in your head right now. Again, those are our top five uses of color in movies, we look forward to your picks or any other comments about the show. You can email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. Over at filmspotting.net, you can find 13 years of reviews, interviews, and top fives. That's all in the show archives. And at the website, you can vote in the current Film Spotting poll. We want to know what is the best follow-up to a Best Picture win. Also, if you haven't already, check out our sister program. It's The Next Picture Show. That's available wherever you listen to podcasts. If you want to order some Film Spotting t-shirts and some other Film Spotting merch, you can do that at filmspotting.net slash shop. You can follow us on Facebook and on Twitter. Adam is at Film Spotting. I'm at Larson on Film. And yes, we do have that weekly Film Spotting newsletter going out. Subscribe for that at filmspotting.net slash episodes. Out in limited release, including here in Chicago this weekend, Monrovia, Indiana, the Frederick Wiseman documentary recommended by me on last week's show, and Wildlife, the directing debut from Paul Dano. It's an adaptation of the Richard Ford novel starring the great Carrie Mulligan and the great Jake Gyllenhaal. I'm excited for that one. Suspiria, the Luca Guadagnino version out as well. It says here in my notes, recommended question mark. Do you know where you're falling on it, Josh? I'm leaning no. Okay, I'm I'm slightly leaning yes. All right, let's do I it. Am. We'll split. <laughs> we'll split. Out in wide release, Nobody's Fool, Tiffany Haddish as a woman who discovers that her sister is in an online relationship with a man who may not be what he seems. The Nutcracker and the Four Realms is out about a young girl who is transported into a magical world of gingerbread soldiers and an army of mice. That sounds colorful. It stars Kira Knightley, Helen Mirren, and Morgan Freeman. Bohemian Rhapsody is also out. The Queen slash Freddie Mercury biopic. Next week on the show, we don't know. We just don't know. We might talk about Bohemian Rhapsody or we might decide to overnight become Orson Welles aficionados and scholars. I don't know. Bohemian Rhapsody, Citizen Kane. We'll see. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant, that is Andy Mitchell. 
Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. If you wouldn't mind going over to Apple Podcasts and giving us a rating or a review, we would certainly appreciate it. That way, we can reach some new listeners. Our music this week, it does come from Tom York's Suspiria soundtrack, which we didn't talk about at all in our review. Dig it. Yeah, I guess I... Knowing that he was doing that, I was kind of hoping for more. Hmm. I don't think there's anything wrong with it. It, It's just kind of there. Yeah. All right. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar, just kind of there. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. What's your favorite color? Um... I'm going to go forest green. Forest green. Yeah, yeah, not just green, not primary green. Ah, I hear you. Yeah. See, and that's that's true. Like, I think blue, I just wonder, I, certainly some people would say like, oh, I like periwinkle or turquoise or navy or whatever. But like, I feel like you could say blue and it just means all those and you like them about the same. But green, you got to choose. Different. You got to choose. choose. You're going primary blue? I'm going primary blue. Yeah, boring blue. Film spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad-free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.